This Week in HPC by Intersect 360 Research. IBM takes a crack at machine bias. And new study predicts workforce disruption. It's This Week in HPC. Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening to another episode of This Week in HPC with Intersect 360 Research, distributed in partnership with Top500.org. I'm Addison Snell, joined again by Michael Feldman. Michael, we've talked a lot about AI on This Week in HPC, and now some new software and research coming out of IBM is trying to tackle a problem with AI, which has to do with when we introduce bias. Yeah, and this is the problem that, you know, the community has known about for some time, but it's a stubborn one because it's it's not easy to fix. I mean, there's bias in the data, there's bias in somehow the sometimes when the algorithms produce the models, and it's hard to untangle because basically the AI itself is not intelligent in the sense that we're intelligent. It just is doing sort of complex correlations and pattern matching. And it's hard to figure out if it's doing it on anything other than uh, some arbitrary correlation that really doesn't map into the real world. So IBM has come up with some some tools, a toolkit, which consists of uh, routines and, and metric measures that say they can actually untangle some of this. They can look at the data, they can look at the the models that were built and come up with some suggestions and some even mitigations for bias that might have been introduced. Yeah, the, the important point here is that what AI is operating based on is is correlation or experiential data. It conflict it contrasts with other types of scientific computing. We have computing problems that are deterministic. I put in a set of inputs. I do the math. I come up with an output. This is the answer. We've even had scientific computing that's probabilistic. I do a Monte Carlo simulation. I run a simulation uh, 100 million times and I see what percent of the time the answer is this and I go with that as the answer. AI is really another yet another type where it's experiential. It's correlation based. All of these were pictures of cats. Here's another picture and my experience suggests that this is a picture of a cat. Now we always run to cat pictures as the demo uh, right. to talk about AI but essentially you're talking about I've got a data set and I'm making a decision based on that. And one thing humans are bad at is oftentimes confusing correlation with causality. I can say, well, the people carrying umbrellas is correlated with baseball games being canceled. But the people <laughs> carrying the umbrellas didn't cause the baseball game to be canceled. And sometimes you come up with a false causality. Now, there are a lot of AI applications where you could say, hey, it doesn't matter. I happen to have a lot of good data on whether people are carrying their umbrellas and I want to use that to predict whether the baseball game is canceled and it turns out to be a good predictor, even if it's not causal. But right. sometimes those false correlations work their way into the data in a way that we want to avoid, particularly when we have non-causal uh, data that correlates, but they're based on things like gender or race. Uh, and we, we want to teach the AI not to make a false correlation based on race, uh, especially when it turns out to be punitive in an algorithm. Yeah. And, and this is, this is very different. Like your suggestion is very different from, from, uh, image recognition or voice recognition where you sort of have these these complex patterns. AI is very good at that, but when it comes to certain types of data that has 
these these labeled attributes in it that have uh, more direct meaning to causality. Uh, it's it's hard for for these models to be built with sort of a lot of confidence, and it, it comes up in like a lot of contexts. I mean, you could see like for creditworthiness, for for health and medical decisions, for things that you know we take a lot of data points uh, or fewer data points that you might have in like an image or a video, and try and correlate that into some graph that's workable. Now, supposedly, this toolkit has the algorithms that are able to determine if there's fairness through, through the input data and how those models are built. Now, they don't go into a lot of detail on how that's done, and I'm sure the, the devil's in the details there. But supposedly, and this is just a start because they've just developed this at IBM Research, they've got these nine algorithms that can start to, to look at these and give some idea of, of where maybe those algorithms and maybe where the data went wrong and make, make some suggestions. And they've they've compiled this from um, from IBM researchers themselves, but also the uh, the community at large who's been studying this issue. And they've gotten this basically this version one of this toolkit, and they think that's that's going to be the start of of something that's going to be valuable as as some of these models go forward into production. Yeah, and this is something that's definitely needed out there. But again, I think we need people to to look at it. The the computer, the AI. I like to stress that with AI, the emphasis should be on artificial, not on intelligence. The computer program does not reason; it does what it's programmed to do. Now, you can program it to find reason in different ways, but it it really is just following instructions, and the web page that uh, IBM put up on this starts out by saying that humans are subject to 185 different types of bias. Now, that's really talking about statistical biases. There are things that we deal with as analysts, things like recency bias and confirmation bias and sample bias. There are all kinds of things that we try to unknit back out. And that's not really, I get the sense that that's not really what they're talking about here a lot of the times. They're talking about things like racial and gender prejudice, and when do they and don't they belong in the model? And before you say they never belong in the model, well, sometimes they do. If you're working toward personalized medicine and you want to say that white people are more likely to have an aortic aneurysm than black people are because medically they are, then maybe you do want to say that when you're going toward personalized medicine, but you want to keep that out of the equation when you're looking at how good a credit risk is somebody. Yeah, exactly. I mean, so you, this this toolkit and these algorithms that are basically auditing these other algorithms uh, have to be sort of more intelligent than the than the original AI. I, I don't think this is a, a solvable problem in the sense that this will be done in like a year. I think this is going to be an ongoing evolution of how we determine the trustworthiness of the data and the algorithm. It's going to be a complex uh, a complex technology to to figure out. I mean, IBM's made this start. There's a lot of research in this area, but certainly as these models get put into production in the financial industry, in the healthcare fields, and and they open some legal liability for these companies, they're gonna to need tools like this to try and figure out, you know, where some of these uh, these models could be going wrong. I'm not sure how much time will take to get to a reasonable level of capability for this technology, but it's, like you said, it's certainly something that is going to be needed as this becomes more mainstream.
Yeah, and it's it's a kind of thing that's difficult to manage when you get into, or I should say, difficult to measure when you get into real world business situations, because what we all do as people all the time is make the best decision we can based on incomplete information. And the idea that AI is suddenly going to make the right decision all the time based on incomplete information, I I think is a fallacy. We still need the ability to look at complex, incomplete information decisions, reason, and make the best decision we can. If we're looking at playing a poker game, you can look at, well, someone made the right decision statistically based on what cards hadn't come up yet, and then they got unlucky and lost. You can say they made the right decision statistically and it didn't work out this time. Most experiments aren't like that. If I did the same thing in a baseball game and my AI or my manager, either one, decided that the best pitch to throw in this situation is a curveball and the batter hit a triple off the wall, you go back and say, well, you made the wrong decision. I don't know. Was it the wrong decision statistically or just the wrong decision that time? And that's something simple like baseball. You get into a business decision These things happen all the time. You make the right decision. Did you make the wrong decision? I don't know. It went well or it went poorly. We're trying to make better decisions. And I don't think AI magically solves that. But if you're going to get the AI to make better decisions in a fair way more of the time, then bias is something that needs to be addressed. Yeah, absolutely. And in those cases, right, that you were talking about, in some cases, you just don't have enough data to know if the decision was based on a, on a valid correlation or not. I mean, you just right. don't have the data. And that's where, you know, intelligence and artificial intelligence are sort of the same. If people don't have enough data, they can't make, you know, any anything close to an infallible decision, and neither can AI. It's not It's not infallibility that's the that's that's the attribute here and if people start to think that ai is infallible that's that's a real danger but <laughs> it'll think, be dangerous for sure yeah but i mean we've seen actually enough enough stories over the past few years where we're seeing ai systems fail they've introduced you know ridiculous uh, results into into something based on their data or based on a faulty algorithm it's not like people aren't at least people that follow this aren't aware of that i think this is something that's that that's well known at least by the community and and things like this i think are trying to address some of the some of those weaknesses now now since we're talking about ai in the future as it applies to people there's also a new study out and you've reported on this on top500.org from the world economic forum and what's the outlook here we should all get ready for our robot overlords right yeah, not quite, not quite yet. Although this is a very interesting study. It only looks out four years, so from 2018 to 2020. And yes, it takes AI into the mix. It's looking for emerging technologies, what they're calling the fourth industrial revolution. But that includes not just AI, but also big data analytics, cloud computing, and what they're calling ubiquitous high-speed mobile internet. So they're sort of looking at those four technologies and the mix of them and how they're how they're shaping or I should say reshaping the workforce and AI of course is a, is a big component of that because they talk about the mix between how much machines are taking over tasks and stuff the, but the the sort of the takeaway here at least from the way they did this study which is basically asking CEOs at different big multinationals what they're foreseeing over the next four years is that 
the workforce will actually grow because of of these technologies. They're looking at 75 million jobs being displaced over those four years, but also 133 million additional jobs could emerge as well. Now, the challenge here is those 75 million jobs displaced and those 133 million jobs added aren't the same jobs, obviously. And so you have to figure out how to get from here to there. Yeah, it's talking about technologies like advanced robotics and artificial intelligence and how that's displacing different types of human labor. And I think that's the case. Now, the first thing to consider is that technology has replaced human labor ever since the invention of technology and people started domesticating animals and sharpening rocks. All of those things replaced human labor in different forms, and yet we still have human labor. Um, the nature of jobs certainly changes. And what is also clear to me is that the pace of change is increasing. And when you look at the combination of a quickening pace of change technologically, things change faster now than they changed before. And also, let's look at lengthening lifespans and the fact that I, I have to be prepared to work longer than someone several generations ago might have had to be prepared to work. So I've got to be in the workforce longer next to a faster pace of change. I think the most critical um, uh, conclusion coming out of this report is when it talks about a reskilling imperative in the report. It said by 2022, no less than 54% of all employees will require significant reskilling and upskilling, and then goes on to describe what that looks like. Now, this is based on a survey of CEOs of major companies. And going back to our previous discussion, we can talk about sample bias in that context. You're only looking at a certain portion of the, the opinions of a certain portion of the uh, uh, of the workforce here. But nevertheless, I think that conclusion holds up that people have to be prepared to change the nature of what it is they do over the course of their careers. Yeah, and I think that's sort of the scariest part to me because it's, like you said, it's happening over a very short time frame. But the other aspect is, you know, we've seen this with other technologies. I mean, manufacturing disappeared in this country and other developed countries and and even before that agricultural jobs disappeared. I don't hang on. Manufacturing has not disappeared in this country. There's plenty of well, manufacturing no. still. It Dis- has a different the, nature than it used to have. Disappeared in the sense as being a dominant uh, employer of people. I mean there's very 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 many few manufacturing jobs there were uh, now there were 50 60 years ago. So I shouldn't say disappeared but much reduced. So those transitions never, uh, from the employer employee's point of view, didn't happen gracefully. A lot of people just never never got back into the workforce. So they found jobs that didn't replace the jobs they had. The the track record of retraining people when these sort of in, uh, technological revolutions came upon us, or even economic revolutions that that met that uh, affected the uh, manufacturing agricultural industries have never really worked that well. And now you've got an even shorter time frame, it seems, to, to basically change again uh, the workforce in, a, in a, even a more drastic fashion. I mean, one of the things that came out from this study is that currently there's about 70% of the total task hours across all industries are being done by humans and about the other 29% for machines. Now they're saying, according to the study, within four years, that 
ratio is going to change to 58% for humans to 42% for machines. That's a huge change of just people who, let's say, have kept their jobs but are now going to be doing uh, a whole sort of different task uh, list for that job. I mean, just the reskilling needed for that is is going to be something. Forget about the people whose jobs just disappeared because of this for something like truck drivers or, or people that have very automated jobs. Um, again, this is a very hard problem for societies to deal with. And like I said, the track record for this in the past where it's occurred at an even slower rate has just not been good. Well, I, again, I would stress that I think jobs change or evolve more than they disappear. Yeah, there are some yeah. categories of jobs that are just not what they were before. But I would still push back on your notion that manufacturing has disappeared from this country. I think manufacturing is still a major part of the U.S. economy. Uh, but the nature of those jobs is a lot different than it was before. Uh, right. Agriculture is still a major part of the United States economy, but the nature of the agricultural job is different than it was before. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, no argument there. So things things change, and uh, and this notion of how can we help reskill or upskill the labor force um, so that it works together with the new technologies as they come out. Technologies are tools, and then people use the tools. Building a tractor, it, in a sense, displaces a human job, but it, the human still uses the tractor, right? It's, it's a way that the job evolves. And then if you ever do get whole different categories of people that wind up uh, not employed, well, the nature of humans is to change and adapt, and enough idle humans will get together and start doing something else. Yeah, uh, I think, again, the only thing to, to be really concerned about here is the short time frame and the people that yes. are living today with these job sets and job skills that will become obsolete in some sense, how they're going to to make it in the next, uh, you know, near near term in the next decade and, and find these new jobs. Now, one thing the study talks about as a mitigation is is to get the companies and, and the other stakeholders, the government and the universities themselves, mm -hmm. to collaborate and to start doing this reskilling as sort of a as a as a program that that is cohesive and actually captures these people as they get displaced and is able to retrain them in the way. That's not an easy thing to to do. It's an easy thing to say, but I think it's something that's going to be needed. You're going to need to collaborate between all the different elements of the economy and and get the people that are going to displace or the, or the people whose jobs are, are changing too rapidly to get these new skills. And like you said, over their lifetimes, maybe institute programs where they're constantly being retrained as their jobs get reshaped by technology. Oh, yeah, no question about that. And, you know, it's that fast pace of change that challenges really things like education, right? Uh, you know, what are you training people to do? Because other than broad strokes like information technology in general, uh, if you went back to 15 years ago, there was nobody who was training specifically to be a data scientist, and then big data went and happened. People weren't specifically training to get involved in artificial intelligence, and yet that happened. Go back to the 1990s and how quickly the, the dot-com boom exploded the web and, and there was a shortage of people who were uh, conversant in web technologies and everybody needed to invest in it at once. Uh, people catch up, the skills will catch up, but then you know by the time you catch up, there's another new thing on the horizon and that really represents the challenge. 
Yeah, and and the challenge is is the time frame again. So you have to turn people that had susceptible jobs like data entry clerks and accountants and vehicle drivers and customer service workers into data scientists, AI specialists, and human machine interaction designers. That's not an easy task. I mean, those those skill sets don't quite match up. That's going to take a while to do. And at the scale they're talking about, where you have 75 million people losing their jobs and 135 3 million being created, uh, that's a huge scale that is, is sort of unprecedented, at least at least on a worldwide basis. And again, it's it's a daunting task. And to hear it, uh, if if this sort of prediction comes true, and like you said, this is this is not this is based on survey data of of company execs, so it's not necessarily the future as it's going to happen. But if it's even close to happening. There's, there's going to be a lot of workforce disruption, and it's going to be a, a tough uphill climb to to get these workers retrained in this time frame. Well, I don't think the sky is falling. I know change is coming, but I choose to look at it with optimism. I think we're, we've got a uh, we've got some fun stuff still ahead. Yeah, well, definitely. It's interesting times, as you would say. All right, Michael. Thanks a lot. Thanks to you for tuning in. You've been listening to This Week in HPC, brought to you by Intersect 360 Research, actionable market intelligence for high-performance computing. For more information, visit intersect360.com.